C. One C. What about a J? A J? S? One S. W. And a W. CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta, on Treaty 7 land, home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Yes, the decorum of the Biden presidency differs from that of the Trump presidency, but the underlying mercenary exploitation and sadism of American society remains untouched. We will extract ourselves from this culture of sadism, the way the dispossessed extracted themselves from the stranglehold of crony capitalism during the Great Depression by organizing, protesting, and disrupting the system until the ruling elites are forced to grant a measure of social and economic justice. That's Chris Hedges, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Chris Hedges on American sadism. The great 20th century Irish poet William Butler Yeats wrote, We had fed the heart on fantasies, the heart's grown brutal, from the fair. The United States has long fed its heart with fairy tales about itself. Hardly a day goes by without some new story being spun about our noble intentions, benevolence, and devotion to international law. Sadism is not something new. Just ask indigenous peoples and blacks or the Vietnamese and Iraqis. Chris Hedges warns, The violence and exploitation, which has long defined imperial projects, now defines existence at home. For empires, in the end, cannibalize themselves. The tyranny we long imposed on others, we now impose on ourselves. The dark pleasure derived from exploiting others is all that is left. Our guest today is Chris Hedges. He's an award-winning journalist who's reported from the Balkans, the Middle East, and Central America. He writes a weekly column for SheerPost.com, and he's the host of On Contact on RT-TV. He's the author of many books, including Wages of Rebellion and America, the Farewell Tour. Chris Hedges spoke on the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on June 27th. Sadism defines nearly every cultural, social, and political experience in the United States. It is expressed in the unchecked greed of an oligarchic elite that has seen its wealth increase during the pandemic by $1.1 trillion, while the country has suffered the sharpest rise in its poverty rate in more than 50 years. It is expressed in the wanton killings by police of unarmed citizens in cities such as Minneapolis. 
It is expressed in the enhanced interrogation techniques used by the CIA at secret black sites, Guantanamo Bay, and in our prisons at home. It is expressed in the separation of children from their parents where they are held as if they were dogs in a kennel. It is expressed in the pornification of American society where women are tortured, beaten, degraded, and sexually violated often by numerous men in porn films and then discarded after a few weeks or months with severe trauma along with sexually transmitted diseases and vaginal and anal tears that must be repaired surgically. It is expressed in the incel movement that perpetuates violent assaults against women by men who say they have been spurned or ignored by women. It is expressed in the predatory health care system where, as Steve Brill writes, a trip to the emergency room for chest pains that turn out to be indigestion can exceed the cost of a semester at college. Simple lab work done during a few days in a hospital can be more expensive than a new car. And a drug that requires $300 to make and that the manufacturer sells to a hospital for between $3,000 and $3,500 can cost the patient to whom it is prescribed $13,702. It is legally permissible in the United States for corporations to hold sick children hostage while their parents bankrupt themselves to save their sons or daughters. This sadism is expressed in payday loans, for-profit prisons, the privatization of public education and public utilities, and the rise of for-profit mercenary armies. It is expressed in the cultural glorification of violence by mass media, the state, and the entertainment and gaming industries. It is expressed in the nihilistic mass shootings at schools, including elementary schools and workplaces. And it is expressed in the murderous and feudal wars we prosecute or support in Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. The historian Johann Huizinga, writing about the twilight of the Middle Ages, argued that as things fall apart, sadism is embraced to cope with the hostility of an indifferent universe. No longer bound by a common purpose, a ruptured society retreats into hedonism and the cult of the self. It celebrates as corporations on Wall Street or popular reality television shows celebrate the classic traits of psychopaths, superficial charm, grandiosity, and self-importance, a need for constant stimulation, a penchant for lying, deception, and manipulation, and the incapacity for remorse or guilt. Get what you can as fast as you can before someone else gets it. This is the state of nature, the war of all against all Thomas Hobbes saw as the consequence of social disintegration, a world in which life becomes solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. 
It is a world in which powerful men like Jeffrey Epstein or Harvey Weinstein reduce bodies, the bodies and selfhoods of their victims to nothing. We know what this sadism looks like. It looks like Derek Chauvin nonchalantly choking to death George Floyd as his police colleagues watch impassively. It looks like Andrew Brown Jr., shot five times by police in North Carolina, including once in the back of the head. It looks like Abner Luima, who had a broomstick pushed up his rectum by police in a bathroom at the 70th Precinct Station House in Brooklyn, requiring three major operations to repair the internal injuries. It looks like the Navy SEAL Special Operations Chief Edward Gallagher randomly shooting to death unarmed civilians and using a hunting knife to repeatedly stab an injured, sedated, 17-year-old Iraqi prisoner and then photographing himself with a corpse. It looks like Iraqi civilians, few of whom had anything to do with the insurgency, naked, bound, beaten, and sexually humiliated and raped, and at times murdered, by army guards and private contractors in Abu Ghraib. Why is the malaise of a dying civilization expressed through sadism, rather than a kind of righteous anger? And here we must turn to Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche warned that those who are humiliated and disempowered are poisoned by ressentiment. Because they have been stripped of agency, they lack the power to harm those who they believe harm them. In short, there is no cathartic release. Ressentiment is bred from damaged self-esteem. It festers and corrodes the soul. The powerless, and here Nietzsche is writing about Christianity as a slave religion, must express their ressentiment obliquely and surreptitiously. Hence the coded racism, Islamophobia, and supposed yearning for a return to the traditional family and quote-unquote Christian values. Ressentiment is produced by feelings of inferiority, failure, and worthlessness. And this ressentiment, fueled by self-loathing, expresses itself through sadism. What Nietzsche calls wrecking the will of those who are weaker or more vulnerable. Nietzsche understood that this wrecking the will of others imparts a perverted, sadistic pleasure. He writes in On the Genealogy of Morals that to see others suffer does one good, to make others suffer even more. Without cruelty there is no festival, and in punishment there is so much that is festive. The ressentiment in American society, the political scientist Wendy Brown writes, is born not only from feelings of powerlessness and worthlessness, but feelings of dethronement and lost entitlement. It explains what she calls the permanent politics of revenge, of attacking those blamed for the dethronement of white maleness, feminists, multiculturalists, globalists, 
who both unseat and disdain them. For this reason, the rage cannot, as it could be in Christian theology, sublimated into self-abnegation and a call to love thy neighbor. There is, in short, nothing to mitigate or redirect this ressentiment. Its pure expression is nihilism and sadism. Trump embodied this dark ethic. Revenge is his sole philosophy of life. Those gripped by ressentiment are no longer able to create. They can only destroy. They gleefully ignite their own funeral pyre. Laws, institution, and bureaucratic structures are deformed to serve the interests of a tiny cabal, a rapacious elite, which enriches itself at the expense of everyone else. All are made to bow before the dictates of what Max Weber called the inanimate machine. The inanimate machine forces the vast majority into the mass, but it allows a selected few willing to do its dirty work to rise above the multitude. These privileged few are given the license and authority to carry out the acts of sadism that have become the primary forms of social control. These enforcers do this work vigorously for their greatest fear is being pushed back into the mass. The more these foot soldiers for the elite insult, persecute, torture, humiliate, and kill, the more they seem to magically widen the divide between themselves and their victims. And this is why black police and correction, corrections officers can be as cruel and sometimes crueler than their white counterparts. The sadism eradicates, at least momentarily, the sadist's feelings of worthlessness, vulnerability, and susceptibility to pain and death. It imparts feelings of omnipotence. It is pleasurable. I was beaten by Saudi military police and later by Saddam Hussein's secret police when I was taken prisoner in Basra shortly after the first Gulf War. Those who beat me enjoyed their work. I could see it on their faces. Israel's abuse of the Palestinians, the assaults of Muslims on Muslims and girls in India, and the denigration of Muslims in countries we occupy are part of the scourge of sadism in service to an inanimate machine that has become global. Feminists have long understood that sadism runs like an electric current through male sexual desire. Pornography is about the fantasy of men who are omnipotent, who have the power to torture and physically abuse girls and women, who in porn beg to be degraded. Sexual fun and sexual passion and the privacy of the male imagination are inseparable from the brutality of male history, Andrea Dworkin writes. The private world of sexual dominance that men demand as their right and their freedom is the mirror image of the public world of sadism and atrocity that men consistently and self-righteously deplore. It is in the male experience of pleasure that one finds the meaning of male history. 
Women, of course, are not immune from acts of sadism. Ilsa Koch, known as the bitch of Buchenwald with her husband, the commandant of the death camp, used to throw prisoners into bears' cages to watch them get ripped apart and devoured. The Chilean, Adriana Rivas, facing extradition to Chile from Australia, reportedly tortured prisoners by strapping them to metal bunk beds rigged with electric current and sending shocks throughout their bodies, or suffocated them to death with plastic bags during the regime of Augusto Pinochet. But Dworkin is right. To highlight sadism as inherent in male expressions of total and unaccountable power. And this is why sadism is the chief characteristic of imperialism. Jean Amari, who was in the Belgian resistance in World War II and who was captured and tortured by the Gestapo in 1943, defines sadism as the radical negation of the other the simultaneous denial of both the social principle and the reality principle. In a sadist world, torture, destruction, and death are triumphant. And such a world clearly has no hope of survival. On the contrary, he desires to transcend the world, to achieve total sovereignty by negating fellow human beings, which he sees as representing a peculiar kind of hell. Armory's point is important. A sadistic society is about collective self-destruction. It is the apotheosis of a society deformed by overwhelming experiences of loss, alienation, and stasis. The only way left to affirm yourself in a failed society is to destroy. Today, this violent tenor of life drives people to carry out wanton police murders, evict families, court-ordered bankruptcies, the denial of Medicare to the sick, suicide bombings, and mass shootings. Sadism imparts the rush and pleasure, often with heavy sexual overtones, which lures us towards what Sigmund Freud called the death instinct. The instinct to destroy all forms of life, including our own. When enveloped by a death-saturated world, death, ironically, is embraced as the cure. Joseph Conrad saw enough of the world as a sea captain to know the irredeemable corruption of humanity, the noble virtues that drove characters like Kurtz in Heart of Darkness into the jungle veiled the abject self-interest, unchecked greed and murder that defines all imperial projects. Conrad was in the Congo in the late 19th century when the Belgian monarch King Leopold, in the name of Western civilization and anti-slavery, was plundering the country. The Belgian occupation, which, which turned the Congo into a rubber plantation, resulted in the death by disease, starvation, and murder of some 10 million Congolese. In Conrad's short story, An Outpost of Progress, he writes of two white European traders, Collier and Kyers, who are sent to a remote trading station in the Congo. 
The mission is endowed with a great moral purpose to export European civilization to Africa. But the boredom and lack of constraints swiftly turn the two men into savages. They trade slaves for ivory. They get into a feud over dwindling food supplies, and Kyrts shoots and kills his unarmed companion. They were two perfectly insignificant and incapable individuals, Conrad wrote, whose existence is only rendered possible through the high organization of civilized crowds. Few men realize that their life, the very essence of their character, their capabilities and their audacities, are only the expression of their belief in the safety of their surroundings. The courage, the composure, the confidence, the emotions and principles, every great and every insignificant thought belongs not to the individual but to the crowd to the crowd that believes blindly in the irresistible force of its institutions and its morals, in the power of its police and of its opinion. But the contact with pure, unmitigated savagery, with primitive nature and primitive man, brings sudden and profound trouble to the heart, to this sediment of being alone of one's kind, to the clear perception of the loneliness of one's thought, of one's sensations, to the negation of the habitual, which is safe. There is added the affirmation of the unusual, which is dangerous. A suggestion of things vague, uncontrollable, and repulsive, whose discomposing intrusion excites the imagination and tries the civilized nerves of the foolish and the wise alike. The managing director of the great civilizing company for, as Conrad notes, civilization follows trade, arrives by steamer at the end of the story. He is not met at the dock by his two agents. He climbs the steep bank to the trading station with the captain and engine driver behind him. The director finds Kyrts, who after the murder committed suicide by hanging himself by a leather strap from a cross that marked the grave of the previous station chief. His toes are a couple inches above the ground, his arms hang stiffly down, and inadvertently he was putting out a swollen tongue at the managing director. Sadism is carried out in the name of a moral good to protect Western civilization, quote-unquote Christian values, democracy, the master race, liberté, égalité, fraternité, the worker's paradise, the new man, or scientific rationalism. Sadism will mend the flaws in the human species. The jargon varies, but the dark sediment is the same. Honor, justice, compassion, and freedom are ideas that have no converts, Conrad writes. There are only people without knowing, understanding, or feeling who intoxicate themselves with words, shout them out, imagining they believe them without believing in anything else but profit, personal advantage, and their own satisfaction. For man is a cruel animal, he went on. His cruelty must be organized. Society is essentially criminal, or it wouldn't exist. It is selfishness that saves everything, absolutely everything. Everything that we abhor, everything that we love. Kurtz, the self-deluded, 
megalomaniac ivory trader in heart of darkness ends by planting the shriveled heads of murdered Congolese on pikes outside his remote trading station. But Kurtz is also highly educated and refined. Conrad describes him as an order, writer, poet, musician, and the respected chief agent of the Ivory Company's inner station. He is an emissary of pity and science and progress. Kurtz was a universal genius and a very remarkable person. He is a prodigy at once gifted and multi-talented. He went to Africa fired by noble ideals and virtues. He ended his life as a self-deluded tyrant who thought he was a god. The violence and exploitation which has long defined imperial projects now defines existence at home. For empires, in the end, cannibalize themselves. The tyranny we long imposed on others, we now impose on ourselves. The dark pleasure derived from exploiting others is all that is left. As Nietzsche wrote in On the Genealogy of Morals, let's clarify the logic of this whole method of compensation. It is weird enough. The equivalency is given in this way. Instead of an advantage, making up directly for the harm, hence, instead of compensation in gold, land, possessions, or some sort of another, the creditor is given a kind of pleasure as repayment and compensation, the pleasure of being allowed to discharge his power on a powerless person without having to think about it. The delight in de faire le mal pour le plaisir de la mal, doing wrong for the pleasure of doing it, the enjoyment of violation. This enjoyment is more highly prized the lower and baser the debtor stands in the social order. And it can easily seem to the creditor a delicious, mouthful, even a foretaste of higher rank. By means of the punishment of the debtor, the creditor participates in a right belonging to the masters. Finally, he himself for once comes to the lofty feeling of despising a being as someone below himself, as someone he is entitled to mistreat, or at least in the event that the real force of punishment, of inflicting punishment, has already been transferred to the authorities, the feeling of seeing the debtor despised and mistreated. The compensation thus consists of a permission for and right to cruelty. Social sadism and murder, as Frederick Engels noted in his 1945 book, The Conditions of the Working Class in England, is built into the capitalist system. The ruling elites, Engels writes, those who hold social and political control were well aware that the harsh working and living conditions during the Industrial Revolution doomed workers to an early and unnatural death. The formation of unions and socialism were in direct response to these malevolent forces. As Engels wrote, when one individual inflicts bodily injury upon another, such that death results we call his deed murder. But when society places hundreds of proletarians in such a position that they inevitably meet a too early death and an unnatural death, one which is quite as much a death by violence as that by the sword or bullet, when it deprives thousands of the necessities of life, places them under conditions in which they cannot live, 
forces them through the strong arm of the law to remain in such conditions until that death ensues, which is the inevitable consequence, knows that these thousands of victims must perish and yet permits these conditions to remain. Its deed is murder just as surely as the deed of the single individual. Disguised malicious murder. Murder against which none can defend himself, which does not seem what it is, because no man sees the murderer, because the death of the victim seems a natural one, since the offense is more one of omission than of commission, but murder it remains. The ruling class devotes tremendous resources to mask this social sadism and murder. It controls the narrative in the press. It floods our screens with friendly, feel-good images and propaganda perfected by the public relations and advertising industries. These electronic hallucinations distract us from the limitations of our own lives. They obfuscate the fundamental nature of corporate capitalism. They attack our self-esteem and create an embarrassing self-consciousness about our appearance, social standing, and bodily functions. They falsify science and data as the fossil fuel, animal agriculture, and tobacco industries have for decades. They create, as Guy Debord writes, the spectacular commodity society that is a seductive substitute to participatory democracy. This entrepreneurial tyranny reduces political choice to the sadistic prescriptions provided by corporate power. It creates a society where there is an absence of nearly all positive and political constructs. Even social change, reduced to identity politics and multiculturalism, has been effectively emasculated by corporate propaganda. A sense of agency, personal power, and social status comes almost exclusively from, as Nietzsche foresaw, serving the sadistic machinery. You're listening to Chris Hedges on American Sadism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, The CIA Coups and Assassinations, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, Alternative Radio. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, MP3s, and PDFs of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. The obscene avarice of the very rich now dwarfs the hedonism and excesses of the world's most heinous despots and wealthiest capitalists of the past. In 2015, shortly before he died, Forbes estimated David Rockefeller's net worth at $3 billion. The Shah of Iran looted an estimated $1 billion from the country. Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos amassed between $5 and $10 billion. And the former Zimbabwean president, Robert Mugabe, Mugabe was worth about a billion. But Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are each worth $180 billion. Yes, the decorum of the Biden presidency differs 
from that of the Trump presidency. But the underlying mercenary exploitation and sadism of American society remains untouched. Biden's American Jobs Plan will never create millions of good-paying jobs, jobs Americans can raise their families on, any more than NAFTA, which he supported, would, as was also promised, create millions of good-paying jobs. His mantra of buy American is worthless. The vast majority of our consumer electronics, apparel, furniture, and industrial supplies are made in China by workers who earn an average of $1 or $2 an hour and lack unions and basic labor rights. His call to lower deductibles and prescription drug costs in the Affordable Care Act will never be permitted by the corporations that profit from the health care system. His promises of fair taxation, despite the world's richest men, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Carl Icahn, Michael Bloomberg, Bloomberg and George Soros paying a true tax rate of 3.4% will not be altered. The corporate subsidies and tax incentives he proposes as a solution to the climate crisis will do nothing to halt halt oil and gas fracking, shut down coal-fired plants, or halt the construction of new pipelines for gas-fired power plants. His money for infrastructure projects is destined for large corporations and state governments. The health system will remain privatized, meaning the insurance and pharmaceutical corporations will reap a windfall of tens of billions of dollars with the American Rescue Plan, and this when they are already making record profits. The profits the big banks, Wall Street, and the predatory global speculators make from the massive levels of debt peonage imposed on an underpaid working class, including those who owe student loans, will continue to funnel money upwards into the hands of a tiny oligarchic cabal. There will be no campaign finance reform to end our system of legalized bribery. The giant tech monopolies will remain intact. The censorship imposed by digital media platforms, the obliteration of our civil liberties, and the wholesale government surveillance will continue to be enforced. Biden's request for $715 billion for the Defense Department, an $11.3 billion increase over 2021, will exacerbate the military provocations with China and Russia, the endless wars in the Middle East, and the bloated defense industry. The industries that were shipped overseas and the well-paying unionized jobs will not return. The 81 million Americans that struggle to meet basic household expenses, the 22 million that lack enough food, and the 11 million that can't make their next house payment are about to hit a wall as the meager benefits from the COVID relief bill runs out and the moratorium is lifted on evictions and foreclosures. The grinding machinery of predatory capitalism and the sadism that defines it will poison the society as mercilessly under Biden as it did when Trump was conducting his Twitter presidency. These so-called reforms have no more weight than those peddled by Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, who Biden slavishly served and who also promised social equality while betraying working men and women. Biden is the epitome of the empty, 
amoral creature produced by our system of legalized bribery, those who built our culture of sadism. His long political career in Congress was defined by representing the interests of big business, especially the credit card companies based in Delaware. He was nicknamed Senator Credit Card. He has always glibly told the public what it wants to hear and then sold them out. He was a prominent promoter and architect of a generation of federal quote-unquote tough-on-crime laws that militarized the nation's police and more than double the population of the prison system, the world's largest, with harsh mandatory sentencing guidelines and laws that put people in prison for life for nonviolent drug crimes, crimes, even as his son struggled with addiction. He was a principal author of the Patriot Act, and there has never been a weapon system or a war he did not support. Nothing substantial will change under Biden despite the hyperventilating about him being the next FDR. The Biden administration resembles the ineffectual German government formed by Franz von Papen in 1932 that sought to recreate the Ancien Regime, a utopian conservatism that ensured Germany's drift into fascism. Biden is bereft, like von Papen, of new ideas and programs. He will keep the machinery of repression well-oiled, a machinery he was instrumental throughout his political career in constructing. Those that will resist will be attacked as agents of a foreign power and censored, as many already are being censored through algorithms and deplatforming on social media. And the most ardent dissidents such as Julian Assange, will be criminalized. The established elites pretend that Trump was a freakish anomaly. They naively believe they can make Trump and his most vociferous supporters disappear by banishing them from social media. The Ancien Regime will, they assert, return with the decorum of its imperial presidency, respect for procedural norms, elaborately choreographed elections, and fealty to neoliberal and imperial politics. But what the established ruling elites have yet to grasp, despite the narrow electoral victory Biden had over Trump and the storming of the Capitol on January 6th by an enraged mob, is that the credibility of the old order is dead. The Trump era, if not Trump himself, is, unless we break the stranglehold on corporate power, the future. The ruling elites embodied by Biden and the Democratic Party and the polite wing of the Republican Party, represented by Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney, is headed for the dustbin of history. The growing resentment of the dispossessed is stoked and fed by a mass media that has divided the public into competing demographics. Media platforms target one demographic, feeding its opinions and proclivities back to it while shrilly demonizing the demographic on the other side of the political divide. This has proved commercially successful, but it has also split the country into irreconcilable warring factions that can no longer communicate. Truth and verifiable fact have been sacrificed. The Democratic Party, in a desperate bid to control the media narrative, has built an alliance with the social media industry giants such as Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Patreon, Substack, and Spotify to curtail or censor its critics. 
The goal is to herd the public back to Democratic Party-allied news organizations such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CNN. But these media outlets, which serve corporate advertisers, have rendered the lives of the working class and the poor invisible, and they are as reviled as the ruling elites themselves. The loss of credibility has given rise to new, often spontaneous groups, as well as the lunatic fringe that embraces conspiracy theories such as QAnon. They traffic in emotional outrage, often replacing one outrage with another. They provide new forms of identity to replace the identity lost by tens of millions of Americans who have been cast aside. This emotional outrage can be harnessed for laudable causes, such as ending police violence, but is too often ephemeral. It transforms political debate into grievance protests at best and more often televised spectacle. These flash mobs pose no threat to the elites unless they build disciplined organizational structures which take years and articulate a vision of what can come next. And this is why I support Extinction Rebellion, which has a large grassroots network, especially in Europe, carries out effective, sustained acts of civil disobedience and has a clearly stated goal of overthrowing the ruling elites and building a new governing system through people's committees and sortition. This emotional outrage, which put Trump in the White House, also stokes the fires of American sadism, especially among a white working class that feels dethroned and abandoned. The breakdown of our society is not only political. It is ecological. Scientists have long warned that as global temperatures rise, increasing precipitation and heat waves in many parts of the world, infectious diseases spread by animals will plague populations year-round and expand into northern regions. Zoonotic diseases, diseases that jump from animals to humans, such as HIV-AIDS, which has killed approximately 36 million people, avian flu, swine flu, Ebola, and COVID-19, which has already killed some 4 million people, will ripple across the globe in ever more virulent strains, often mutating beyond our control. The misuse of antibiotics in the animal agriculture industry, which accounts for 80% of all antibiotic, antibiotic use, has produced strains of bacteria that are antibiotic-resistant and fatal. A modern version of the Black Death, which in the 14th century killed between 75 and 200 million people, wiping out perhaps half of Europe's population, is probably inevitable as long as the pharmaceutical and medical industries are configured to make money rather than protect and save lives. Even with vaccines, we lack the national infrastructure to distribute them efficiently because profit supersedes health. And those in the global south are, as usual, abandoned, as if the diseases that kill them will never reach us. Israel's decision to distribute COVID-19 vaccines to as many as 19 countries while refusing to vaccinate 
the five million Palestinians living under its occupation is emblematic of the ruling elite's stunning myopia, not to mention immorality. What is taking place is not neglect. It is not ineptitude. It is not policy failure. It is social murder. It is murder because it is premeditated. It is murder because a conscious choice was made by the global ruling classes to extinguish life rather than protect it. It is murder because profit, despite the hard statistics, the growing climate disruptions, and the scientific modeling is deemed more important than human survival. The global elites thrive in this system as long as they serve the dictates of what Lewis Mumford called the mega-machine. The convergence of science, economy, technology, and political power united into an integrated, bureaucratic structure whose sole goal is to perpetuate itself. This structure, Mumford noted, is antithetical to life-enhancing values. But to challenge the mega-machine, to name and condemn its death wish, is to be expelled from its inner sanctum. There are no doubt some within the mega-machine who fear the future, who are appalled by the social murder, who worry what will happen to their children. But they do not want to lose their jobs and their social status to become pariahs. The U.S. military, which accounts for 38% of military spending worldwide, is, of course, incapable of combating the grave existential crisis before us. The fighter jets, satellites, aircraft carriers, fleets of warships, nuclear submarines, missiles, tanks, and vast arsenals of weaponry are useless against pandemics and the climate crisis. The war machine which is spending $1.2 trillion to modernize our nuclear arsenal, does nothing to mitigate the human suffering caused by degraded environments that sicken and poison populations or make life unsustainable. Air pollution already kills an estimated 200,000 Americans a year, while children in decayed cities such as Flint, Michigan, are damaged for life with lead contamination from drinking water. And on top of all this, the U.S. military emitted 1.2 billion metric tons of carbon emissions between 2001 and 2017, twice the annual output of the nation's passenger vehicles. Future generations, if there are any, will look back at the current global ruling class as the most criminal in human history, willfully dooming billions of people to mass death. These crimes are being committed in front of us, and with few exceptions, we are being herded like sheep to the slaughter. The radical evil that makes this social murder possible is perpetrated by the colorless bureaucrats and technocrats churned out of business schools, law schools, management programs, and elite universities. Demonic non-entities. These systems managers carry out the incremental tasks that make the vast, complicated systems of exploitation and death work. They collect, store, and manipulate our personal data for digital monopolies and the security and surveillance state. 
They grease the wheels for ExxonMobil, BP, and Goldman Sachs. They write the laws passed by the bought and paid-for political class. They pilot the aerial drones that terrorize the poor in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan. They profit from the endless wars. They are the corporate advertisers, public relations specialists, and television pundits that flood the airwaves with lies. They run the banks. They oversee the prisons. They issue the forms. They process the papers. They denied food stamps and medical coverage to some and unemployment benefits to others. They carry out the evictions. They enforce the laws and the regulations. They do not ask questions. They live in an intellectual vacuum, a world of stifling minutia. They are as T.S. They are T.S. Eliot's hollow men, stuffed men, shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. These systems managers made possible the genocides of the past. They kept the trains running. They filled out the paperwork. They seized the property and confiscated the bank accounts. They did the processing. They rationed the food. They administered the concentration camps and the gas chambers. They enforced the law. They did their jobs. These systems managers, uneducated in all but their tiny technical specialty, lack the language and moral autonomy to question the reigning assumptions or structures. The Russian novelist Vasily Grossman in his book Forever Flowing observed that the new state did not require holy apostles, fanatic, inspired builders, faithful, devout disciples. The new state did not even require servants, just clerks. This metaphysical ignorance, the product of an educational system that is primarily vocational, greases the cogs for the culture of sadism and social murder. We will not extract ourselves from predatory capitalism and its culture of sadism with meager government handouts. We will not extract ourselves because Biden's slick speechwriters and public relations specialists who use polls and focus groups to feed back to us what we want to hear can make us feel the administration is on our side. There is no goodwill in the Biden White House, the Congress, the courts, the media, which has become an echo chamber of the privileged classes or corporate boardrooms. They are the enemy. We will extract ourselves from this culture of sadism, the way the dispossessed extracted themselves from the stranglehold of crony capitalism during the Great Depression, by organizing, protesting, and disrupting the system until the ruling elites are forced to grant a measure of social and economic justice. The Bonus Army World War I, World War I veterans who had been denied pension payments set up huge encampments in Washington which were violently dispersed by the Army. Neighborhood groups, many of them members of the Wobblies or the Communist Party, in the 1930s physically prevented sheriff departments from evicting families. In 1936 and 1937, the United Auto Workers carried out a sit-down strike inside factories that crippled General Motors, forcing the company to recognize the union, 
raise wages, and meet union demands for job protection and safe working conditions. Farmers, forced into bankruptcy and foreclosures by the big banks in Wall Street, founded the Farmers' Holiday Association to protest the seizure of family farms. One of the reasons bank robbers such as John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, and the Barker gang were folk heroes. The farmers blocked roads and destroyed mountains of farm products, reducing supply and raising prices. The farmers, like unionized auto workers, endured widespread government surveillance and violent attacks from the FBI, company goons, hired gun thugs, militias, and sheriff's departments. But the militancy worked. The farmers forced the state to accept a de facto moratorium on farm foreclosures. Mass demonstrations outside state capitals at the same time pressured state legislatures to block the collection of overdue mortgage payments. Tenant farmers and sharecroppers in the South unionized. The Department of Labor called their collective action, quote, a miniature civil war, end quote. The unemployed and the hungry throughout the country squatted in vacant homes and on vacant land forming, forming shanty towns that were known as Hoovervilles. The destitute took over public buildings and public utilities. This constant pressure, not the goodwill of FDR, created the New Deal. He and his fellow oligarchs understood that if there was not reform, there would be revolution, something Roosevelt acknowledged in his private correspondence. It is not until people are reintegrated into society not until corporate and oligarchic control over our educational, political, and media systems are removed, not until we recover the ethic of the common good, that we have any hope of rebuilding the positive social bonds that foster a healthy society. History has amply illustrated how this process works. It is a game of fear, and until we make the ruling elites afraid until a terrified Joe Biden and the oligarchs he served look out on a sea of pitchforks. We will not blunt the culture of sadism and social murder they have engineered. Rebellion, however, must be its own justification. It is a moral imperative, not a practical one. It not only erodes, however imperceptibly, the structures of oppression, but it sustains the embers of empathy and compassion as well as justice within us that defy the sadism that colors every layer of our existence. In short, it keeps us human. Rebellion must be embraced finally, not only for what it will achieve, but for what it will allow us to become. And in that becoming, we find hope. Thank you. You were just listening to Chris Hedges on American Sadism. He spoke in Troy, New York on June 27th. Chris Hedges, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, is one of America's finest independent journalists. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. 
We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media. And we have a series of programs with Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Chris Hedges on American Sadism, and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, the CIA Coups and Assassinations, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're offering free transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to Steve Pierce and the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. hills of the Rocky Mountains and on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 region, broadcasting from the University of Calgary campus station, you are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM.